This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're approaching the 500th episode of this podcast series, which began as a Bob Cudmore Show segment in 2014, when I was still on the radio in Amsterdam. As the great broadcaster Paul Harvey would say from time to time, over my shoulder, a backward glance. One of the most compelling episodes we worked early on uh, was put online as episode 49, March 2nd of 2015, an interview with Lawrence Gooley, Northern New York native and popular author. Larry Gooley attracted much attention with his account of the life and death of Adirondack serial killer Robert Garrow, who was killed in 1978. Larry's book is called Terror in the Adirondacks, the true story of serial killer Robert F. Garrow. When the book was newly published, Larry drew very large crowds. Hundreds of people would come to his Robert Garrow book talks. Why did you want to do a book on this topic? Well, there's actually a personal angle to it. Um, at about the time Garrow was being hunted, I was in my late teens, and um, I, from where I live way up north, I could see the mountains. I absolutely loved the views, and I could not wait to be a climber. So I had just really begun climbing, and I was going wild with it, going everywhere, and just really enjoying being in the woods. And if you'd meet someone, you knew they were like-minded. And when the Garrow thing happened, we were suddenly warned to stay out of the woods. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, tough guy, a weightlifter and everything, so I, I just kept going, but I did start to carry a weapon, because you never knew who you were going to meet out there, and and it always stuck with me, uh, I didn't know the whole story on Garrow, and always angry that he ruined it for me, that if you met someone a couple of miles in on the trail, you would greet them and know that they were just like you, they just loved the outdoors, and after Garrow did his thing, it was more like always glancing over my shoulder to see who it was, and to make sure I was safe. It just you know, made everything at least a little bit uncomfortable because you realize you never know. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And I, uh, from from members of my family, before we started this interview, I was kidding with my uh, colleague, uh, Dave Green. He said, well, what, what's this man done? I said, well, you know, I think he's he's really been an outdoorsman, hiked, biked, climbed, canoed. I said, a lot like me, which is stupid because I, I don't do any of those things. I'm the <laughs> consummate indoors man. But my uh, son-in-law and my daughter, they, they've done a lot of uh, hiking, and that's the ex their, most of their experience on the trail is what you first described. It's often a, you know, a, a friendly or a non-threatening kind of encounters with other people. Yes, and even if, even if you're not religious, there's um, a spiritual aspect to it. You, you just Until you sit on top of a mountain all by yourself, maybe watch a sunrise or something, it's just it's something you have to experience to to say i get it this is this is really something unusual and uh, you know i didn't want that ruined for me at the time but but it certainly did uh, impact it mm. well let's let me ask you about uh, robert garrow and again uh, that uh, talk you did up in fulton county imagine you remember it you had a packed house for that right uh it, it was amazing because we know that on events where you might be you might be at a time where you're opposite on a Sunday. You might be opposite the NFL or NASCAR or something, and, you know, a lot of North Country fans for those sports. And yet uh, we had drawn 150 and over 250 at another place. So we thought, you know, that was about the best it's ever going to be. But at, at Fulton County, it was just amazing. They, they said 
They believe there were over 300 there. The, the whole building was packed. Now, Robert Garrow, born 1936, uh, up in the North Country, correct? And, and was an abused child? Yes, uh, yeah, uh, terribly abused child. Yeah, he was actually when I when I began researching it, I didn't realize that he was actually born up here in the in uh, near Dannemora Prison, actually not very far away from there. Um, and he, there's actually uh, a second Robert Garrow who grew up a few miles away, who's been a North Country hero. So I often get asked that question about what's the relationship because we did a book for the second Robert Garrow about uh, North Country baseball. But the original, uh, the serial killer, was actually born up here in the north. But are they related in any way? Or? No, it just happens to be a very common name up here. It's a variation of Giro and Giro. There's many French pronunciations of it. Now, the man who became the serial killer, Robert Garrow, first was convicted, was he not, or captured for some rapes? Well, he was he was suspected in some of them, actually, uh, early on in his criminal career back um, around 1960, he was caught in the Albany area, and he was sent, what I would say, sort of sent home to Dannemora Prison. And, it, you know, it was possible then we would never hear from this man again, which would have been great for everyone. But he served time in Dannemora and then managed to manipulate the system and get himself moved. And eventually, crimes happened again when he was released. Mm-hmm. And um, among his victims were, as you described the, the scenario uh, that caused so much fear, there were some campers uh, near, near Speculator that, uh, that apparently he killed. Yes, he, um, he had this habit of tying people up, and um, some of the ones he killed were tied up. And one, at least, if you see the autopsy photos and things like that, you can tell it was really an execution. It wasn't a furious stabbing or anything. It was it was a methodical thing. Mm. And very, very these disturbing. were what you would call, or I don't know, maybe that's not the right term I'm going to use, but random acts of violence. It's not that he knew these people or had any kind of real connection with them. Well, he was a, a sexual predator. Uh, it was suspected at the time, but not known for sure. He had already served time for the Albany rapes, but during the time leading up to the uh, chase for him in the speculator area, he had been committing several rapes in Syracuse area. Um, mm -hmm. He eventually admitted to at least seven of those. So, mm -hmm. so there are many and of the crimes he could be traced to, but they didn't know until the manhunt began and they began researching further, and he was a suspect in many of those. When is this, and when does the manhunt begin? Well, with Garrow, there were actually a few manhunts, but the principal one was 1973. And that took place in the speculator area. It ended up lasting, I think it was 12 days. There were nine days there. And despite virtual gridlock on the highways there, he managed to escape to the Mineville area, and it went on for another three days, and he was finally captured. Mm -hmm. And when he was captured, he was, he was wounded, was he not? In a, well, I don't know if it was a shootout, but he was uh, wounded by gunfire. Yeah. Right. The order was to, to capture him alive, but they had to make a split-second decision, and one of the officers opened fire and hit him several times. Um, he was injured in the back, in the arm, and in the leg. So eventually he crawled into the woods, and they tracked him down there and captured him. And once uh, captured, he was uh, sent to prison. Uh, but the story doesn't end there by any means. No, I mean, in a sense, it really begins there because of the, so many huge components to his own story played out. 
how separately how he manipulated the entire um, correction system in New York State and how he fooled everyone, or not everyone, but fooled many people by faking his injuries and using that to get moved to different facilities. And then there was also the, the hidden bodies story where the lawyers were in a lot of trouble. They were defending Garrow, but at the same time had learned that there were other victims and didn't reveal that information until it came out during the trial. And mm. about mid-trial, they were suddenly vilified across the country because they had withheld information about other victims. And eventually, he escaped from jail. Yes, he, he first manipulated the system, claiming that he was injured when, you know, I have since spoken to many corrections officers, uh, sheriff's deputies who guarded him at different times, and they saw him exercising, and they knew he was very strong. So they believed he was mobile. But he managed to see enough doctors, it was actually 50 doctor visits in all, about 50, where he moved to different prisons and finally got down to Peekskill, and that's where he managed to escape. And after he escaped, he, he was killed? Yes, there was another manhunt, and it lasted three days, and just before they actually caught him, you know, they realized he could be as far away as Florida or Texas or way up in Canada. Nobody knew where he was, but it was later discovered that it was most likely because of an injury when uh, he was supposedly disabled, but he broke through a fence and climbed a very tall fence in order to escape, and uh, they, they, he injured his shoulder when he fell. So he was still hiding on the outside edge of prison grounds, and uh, when they cornered him, they ordered him to freeze, but he stood up and started shooting. So this was, of course, stunning because no one believed he had a weapon. Mm. And then they shot him, and uh, he was hit at least four times and died. And uh, this was in 1978 that he died? Yes. In fact, um, the man that he shot was actually at our event at Fulton County last year. Really? Yes, um, he, he showed up there, really treated like a celebrity, and it's the first time I had met him by email, but it was the first time I met him in person. You know, we posed for some pictures and had a, a pretty good time. And you mean he? this was a man who was there when um, Garrow was killed? or Right, when they told Garrow to freeze, he was in some heavy brush. He stood up and fired, and the officer's name, Dominic Arena, was right up front, very close to him, and he was hit. And uh, he really could have died from his injuries, and fortunately he didn't, and... Uh, did manage to survive it. Mm. So he was really Garrow's last victim. And it's is it known how many people he killed, uh, Garrow? Well, that's always going to be a subject of dispute. Um, you know, he admitted to four murders, and police officers who worked on the case suspected as many as 22. But uh, some of those I know since then, and I did put um, an addendum in the back of the book, that some of those have since been solved. The, the people who committed those murders are actually in prison and have admitted to them. So some of them would be removed from that list. But because Garrow was killed, we'll never really know how many. Hmm. Would you, I mean, has the, oh, I don't know, the change in attitude of the users or the outdoors people in the, in the Adirondacks, has that kind of, quote, unquote, gone back to normal? Or is he, do you think it was forever altered by this uh, episode? Well, a little bit of both, really. Um, many people that I've talked to feel the same way, you know, that, you know, we're not afraid, but we we remember it clearly. We know what can happen, and it's probably best to guard against it by locking your doors. But, but you know, we see when something does happen in the Adirondacks, people might mention they don't, you know, well, we'll have to start locking our doors. Well, it's something I've become accustomed to. 
Terror in the Adirondacks, a book about uh, serial killer Robert Garrow, written by our guest on The Historian's uh, Larry Gooley. Larry Gooley's book on serial killer Robert Garrow came out years before the pandemic, for example, and the book became popular before mass shootings in America became so numerous. At the very least, our recent history with gun violence puts Robert Garrow's crimes of the 1970s into a different context. More on Adirondack author Larry Gooley in just a moment. The latest contributions to the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive were large gifts from the Fort Plain Museum and longtime supporter Dave Northrup. Please make a donation today. Help us provide history podcasts on female war correspondent Dickie Chappelle, Songs of the American Revolution, The Wild West, Early Movie Making in Upstate New York, and much more. Donate online by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You may give anonymously, and donations large and small are all appreciated. Lawrence Gooley has hiked, climbed, bicycled, and canoed in the Adirondack Mountains for more than 40 years. With a lifetime love of research, writing, and history, he's written 23 books and more than 200 articles on the region's past. Larry Gooley has won the McMaster's Prize for Historical Writing and the Adirondack Literary Award. His nonfiction title, which we've been discussing, Terror in the Adirondacks, was a regional bestseller for four years. Larry Gooley and his partner, Jill Jones, founded their company, Bloated Toe Enterprises, let me repeat that for you, Bloated Toe Enterprises, in 2004. We'll explain that in a moment. But first, I asked Larry, when did you start writing Adirondack books? Well, uh, my first one actually came out back in 1980, but raising a family um, full-time and going to my kids' sports and never missing anything, I, I just collected research as I could over the years. And we finally revived it all in um, uh, 2004. Mm-hmm. And today, are, are you pretty much making your living with, with your activities involving uh, writing and other things uh, having to do with the Adirondacks? Yes, uh, my partner and I, Jill Jones, that's uh, how we've been making our living through publishing my own works and selling them and publishing for others as well. And we do editing projects and things like that. And let me ask you where the unusual name came from. I gather, as you might expect, there's a story as to why you call this Bloated Toe Enterprises. Yes, uh, that really the source of that is my partner, Jill Jones, um, partner and wife, I should say. We, um, we began hiking everywhere across the Adirondacks as I got to know her. And on one of our trips... Um, you know, we had this normal thing where I've already been to these, and she loves exercise, so we would just hike really fast, get to the top of a mountain, strip down and enjoy the sun and eat. And uh, anybody who hikes with me is lucky to have me along because I'm one of these bug magnets. Mosquitoes and black flies just love me. So you'll see a cloud of them around me. 
And uh, on that particular day, I had been bitten up pretty badly, and you know, but I'm a hardcore hiker, so we're going down. And this is the first time going down the mountain where I actually had to say, uh, Jill, you know, you need to slow down a little bit. My foot is just hurting so bad. And we went a little further, and she's still just going right along. So I said, look, I can't help it. I have a bloated toe. So she pointed around, turned around and pointed at me, and she says, that's what we'll call our company. Well, at that point, I, I had no idea we were ever going to have any kind of a company. But when it came time to form our publishing company, I collected some books on the subject, and they tell you make sure you're clear about what it is, like ghoulie publishing or something like that. So instead, we did just the opposite and went with her original bloated toe. So, so we, we do have toe. a little story on our website, and we get asked that very often. Larry Gooley and Jill Jones have now published over 80 titles, including over 30 reproductions of out-of-print regional history books. They also offer web design. Online shoppers can visit the North Country store to purchase any of Bloated Toes products, plus the works of other regional authors. Another story from Larry Gooley. He grew up way up north in New York State in Champlain, just a mile or so from the Canadian border in northern New York, where he could see Lion Mountain in the distance. But I, you know, very familiar with Lion Mountain, of course. I had written, I eventually wrote two books about Lion Mountain, but it's one of the biggest mountains north of the uh, Adirondacks proper. When you get up there, you can actually, you can clearly see Whiteface, and you can also see the skyscraper, skyscrapers in Montreal. So uh, a really neat place to visit, and I just couldn't wait to get into the mountains. And I, you know, I've canoed the length of Lake Champlain. I've canoed in dozens and dozens of lakes and ponds, uh, hiked all across. Uh, the mountains, did some biking as well. So, you know, I've done a lot of different things and done a lot of repeat things. So I'm really centered north of, on the northern edge of the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, your book about Lion Mountain, and I really don't know anything about it, it's called The Tragedy of a Mining Town. Uh, what did they yeah. mine up there? <laughs> I know, it's amazing that it's not more widely known, but for 100 years they produce the highest grade iron ore in the entire world. So it's a very important part of regional history and American history. As I write in the books, you you discover how important it was when sources of the best ore in the world were cut off, uh, say, from England could no longer get ore from Sweden. They had to get it somewhere else. Well, in Sweden, Danamora ore was the best on the planet, and that's where the name Danamora came from up here in the north. Danamora prison was built in order to have the prisoners brought up here to mine the iron ore. It was the highest grade ore. So that ore became very important during war, and uh, there are many editorials written back in the 1940s um, promoting the work of these men. They weren't allowed to ever leave their jobs during wartime because the nation needed these for um, missiles and for all kinds of weapons and uh, protective, um, protecting the ships with coatings of iron, things like that. So this was the best grade of ore anywhere. It's um, As I wrote, people get more excited when they hear it was used for many of the um, cables that support our bridges, like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate, because it was a very uh, high-grade and thus very flexible. They could use it to make hoop skirts and fencing and things like that. Has it just petered out, or what, what happened to the... Well, actually, no, it was um, really operating up into the 1960s, and um, the biggest problem was the discovery of 
a lower grade ore, but on the surface. This is these are all underground mines. They tunnel here. Back then, they ran down to about 2,300 feet below the surface, and there were miles of tunnels. So it was expensive to get out of the ground. And then in the Masabi Range, when they discovered all this iron ore where they could actually drive up with front loaders right on the surface, it was much less expensive to do. And that really hurt the mines here, and the effect eventually put them out of business. There's still plenty of iron in the ground, though. One more story from Larry Gooley. He writes frequently for New York Almanac previously known as New York History Blog. For example, he did a series on a con man named Jim Brady, whose life of crime stretched from the late 1800s into the 1900s. I've always written about history, but I've been classified sometimes as a true crime writer. You know, I I do like those stories, and I did a a story on 25 diabolical Adirondack murders. So, you know, I'm very interested in people like this, and uh, as long as they are somewhere from Albany North to the Canadian border, I consider them you know, North Country and the Foothills, so um, I'll cover their stories, and he is from that area and committed his crimes here and elsewhere. And it's just very difficult to research things like this because they don't brag about what they do, and if they don't get caught very often, we don't know all the things that they've done. So his was a really tough one to follow, but you could find... And the aliases was another problem. But you could track him to different prisons when he was held there, and the, uh, the census records help with that. So uh, I just found it. the more I learned, the more I wanted to know, and it was just a fascinating story. Really an amazing guy. I mean, a criminal, yes. Uh, you know, I do point that out. I'm not praising these people, but I'm interested in their stories. Mm-hmm. Was he from Troy originally, or is that where we first hear of him? Uh, yes, and it, it's kind of kind of hard to pin down where he's actually from because his nickname one of his nicknames was albany jim but um but the troy area was cited as as his birthplace and that he referred to it that way so the trouble is he would tell different stories throughout his life so sometimes you didn't know with these criminals what the truth was and he did uh, do violent acts uh, let me ask you did he ever to your knowledge did he kill a person or persons in his life of crime I, I don't believe so. He was involved. He tried really tried to avoid the violent aspect of it. That's why they sometimes refer to him as Gentleman Jim the Burglar, because he would try to steal things but not get involved in all the shootings and knifings that were so common in other cases. So most of the time he, he managed to avoid that, and that's probably the reason he became very popular with the press. They'd love to interview him because he had these wonderful wild stories to tell, and it wasn't really – it was less offensive to the public. Yes, and kind of like a confidence man sort of thing, yes. would you say? Oh, definitely, definitely. He he explained how he went up to Canada for a while and just passed himself off as someone very important, and he was treated like royalty, and he thoroughly enjoyed it and laughed about it later, you know. And he did the same thing, um, passing himself as a U.S. senator briefly. So <laughs> it was those types of things that people were fascinated with, and I was too. Yeah. Probably he could have said at the time the Senate was giving him a bad name. No, I don't know what that <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. Now, is he, um, but he was in the Albany, Troy area, but he, I believe one of your stories was set in New York City. I mean, where were the places? Or maybe you were, or you were just talking about that, too. Yeah, I was following him committing his crimes. He did several crimes in New York State and in New England and in New York City area. You know, he was very famous as a bank robber. Uh, he did... Uh, some of the biggest robberies in American history, and he was one of the masterminds behind them doing some of the planning. So that's and, why I had to follow him wherever he went, and of course New York City was a popular 
popular place for crooks. And I gathered from the uh, your last installment that he had a partner in crime, a female, he was companion or lover or whatever, maybe they're even married, but uh, apparently she finally hoodwinked him or something like that. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, he he did pretty well in Europe with her, I remember, um, you know, very successful financially and came back to the States, but then apparently she did, she turned the tables on him and he eventually returned to New York State after all that happened. He had just and by then, you know, he was getting older, and he had so many interesting stories and um, from prison life and from everywhere else. Just a really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Kind of did reminded he, me of the old Willie Sutton stories. Did he die in jail or or not? No, it it was kind of. Uh, I'm not sure which installment ran if the last one ran yet. So I would say spoiler alert. But he was finally in. Um, incapable of taking care of himself and he was in this home and uh he just kind of disappeared one day and the suspicion is it was really suicide just uh standing in front of a train mm. we're so speaking uh, really with uh, larry Gooley about his uh, works about the adirondack her his the books he's written and uh, articles uh, he's uh, been doing a series for new york history blog on the criminal Jim Brady. And that's the Larry Gooley story on the Historian's Podcast, one of our early episodes. Our first podcast was February 21st of 2014 uh, with uh, a person who became a rather regular guest, Montgomery County historian Kelly Farquhar. And then we did a, a podcast with Ann Picconi of the Walter Elwood Museum And the late Bob Going uh, joined us uh, talking about the uh, Elwood Museum. He, at the time, I think, was chairman of the board. Other early uh, guests on Historians Podcast included Robert Von Hosselen, who is uh, Amsterdam's uh, city historian. Also, how could we forget Peter Betts? Uh, Peter Betts, uh, FMCC professor emeritus with all kinds of uh, stories about Fulton County history. And we've done a number of uh, podcasts with Jerry Snyder, including one in the uh, very early days. It was episode 13, where he talked just about the historic Amsterdam League, of which he was the co-founder. And Paul Grandel uh, was kind enough to grace our podcast ways uh, with uh, different stories that he's written about Albany Mayor Erastus Corning and other figures in the city of Albany. We also spoke in the early days with John Warren, who was the founder of the New York History blog, which became uh, the New York uh, Almanac. And John Warren was uh, very helpful in uh, actually coming up with our name. I was just calling it The Historians. And he said, well, if it's going to be a podcast, it should be The Historians Podcast. And it became ever ever thus, uh, Historians Podcast. One of the uh, other early uh, guests was Jack McEnany, a former assemblyman in uh, Albany and uh, quite a local uh, historian, and Kyle Jenks, quite a quite a character, and I say that with a great deal of affection because he plays characters. Kyle uh, Jenks uh, does um, a, a mean James Madison. He can be uh, transformed into James Madison and is 
uh, done other uh, programs uh, for us along along those lines. Uh, we spoke with a woman named Julia Blackwelder, who talked about the early history of General Electric. And then we had the author of the novel Orphan Train, Christina Baker Klein, discussing a program that transported thousands of the destitute children from New York and other eastern cities uh, to foster homes located mainly uh, in the uh, West or in the Middle West. So we're coming up on episode 500. Thank you for joining us on this trip. And on behalf of my producer, Dave Green, this is Bob Cudmore, and I want to say you've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. <laughs>